0: Last week, the state government decided to scrap the nine year old blue bike share scheme in Melbourne. The bikes and their docking stations will start being removed in a couple of months. And as one columnist wrote in the weekend papers, Melbourne seems to be the graveyard of public bike share schemes. The yellow O bikes came and went within about a year. So, is this the end of the line for initiatives like this here, or are we likely to see something else emerge? Elliot Fishman is Director of Transport Innovation uh, at the Institute for Sensible Transport. He's got a book which came out on Friday with the blue bikes on the front. It's called Bike Share and it's great to see you, Elliot.
2: Thanks for having me on the program.
0: And uh, I suppose, were you surprised that the Bike Share scheme has been scrapped in Melbourne?
2: I'm actually surprised that it lasted as long as it did actually because it was only getting somewhere between 0.3 and 0.8 trips per day per bike which compared to say Paris which gets about 6 trips per day per bike uh, it was doing pretty poorly and it's doing poorly for a long time uh, and then with the introduction of the free tram zone uh, it killed ridership even further from what was a pretty low base to begin with so it was it would really been on life support since about 2014 when they realised bike shows actually a little bit harder than what they were thinking and they'd tried to work out ways of resolving it and they just had it on a Uh, 12-month by 12-month program of extension. And uh, finally, after nine years, they decided that um, they weren't going to be able to make it any better, so they might as well get rid of it.
1: And so why was that particular scheme not embraced by Melbournians, in your view?
2: Well, it started off poorly by uh, starting at the beginning of winter. So it was May 2010. It was a particularly wet winter, actually, compared to other Melbourne winters. So most people got used to seeing the bikes sitting there unused, just... uh, uh, that they would walk up and maybe ring the uh, bell or play with the handlebars in the first few weeks and then that public intrigue dissipated and people got used to seeing them sit unused and that really did a lot of damage from a psychological perspective because people uh, felt that it was a waste of money and they didn't see anyone ever riding them. So even when the weather got better... It was a system that uh, people had just kind of laughed at rather than actually used. And they also didn't really have much of a plan uh, regarding helmets. And Melbourne is um, only one of a handful of cities that run bike, runs a bike share scheme in a city with mandatory helmet laws. And they didn't really have a plan for that to begin with. So there are lots of problems from that perspective. But then also the size of the scheme. It was only 600 bikes for 4.5 million people. We're now 5 million people in Melbourne. So that's a very low ratio of bikes per person internationally. And so that meant that the network benefits aren't there. Yet. There's nowhere really to go unless you happen to be maybe a tourist in the inner city and you may be staying in South Bank and you're, uh, I don't know, going to St Kilda. That, that's great. But apart from those sorts of trips, it doesn't really offer the, the value proposition that you would expect.
0: And I remember um, you being on this program nine years ago when this kicked off and you voiced these views then um, just right at the very beginning that the helmet law interaction the range of the bikes which was relatively limited and uh, yeah so it came true really that these were obstacles and we haven't we didn't overcome them
2: no well I wish I had been wrong uh, nine years ago and of actually course, that, because you're
0: actually enthusiastic about yeah. sharing schemes in general
2: yeah absolutely and I've been to cities that have very successful bike share schemes Places like uh, Paris, where a quarter of all bikes on the road being ridden at any one time are bike share bikes in in Paris. And uh, it also stimulated the purchase of private bikes as well. So it can be a really great tool for stimulating bike use, but it needs to be done well. It's not as simple as just putting uh, 600 bikes uh, on the street and then just hoping people will use them. You've got to do it well. It's just like planning any other form of public transport, it needs to be done very carefully for it to be done well, and you really have to have the user at the very centre of the design of the scheme, and that clearly didn't happen in Melbourne, it didn't happen in Brisbane either, it would be much better if the scheme was much larger, so they missed out on a lot of the areas of Melbourne that have the highest levels of bike ridership now. Which is actually a good predictive tool for future bike uptake because the infrastructure is there, the density is there. So suburbs like uh, Brunswick and uh, Fitzroy, uh, uh, Richmond, these suburbs were missed out, but actually have strong underlying uh, demographic and land use uh, characteristics that would have uh, uh, predicted higher levels of use, and yet they they didn't provide the scheme they also didn't integrate it with MyKey ticketing, which would have been a smart move as well. So the people didn't have to sign up to a, a, another thing uh, if they just had everyone had a, a MyKey in their their wallet and they just um, swipe that and went, which is what you can do in Paris and lots of other cities.
1: Do you think there's anything in the idea that they, it was set up in a very limited way initially because there were some concerns about whether people would embrace this in Melbourne, but then consequently because there weren't enough bikes around and there weren't enough docking stations at kind of convenient locations around the city, people didn't use it?
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So what happened was... Uh, The now treasurer, but at the time the roads and ports minister, Tim Pallas, set up the scheme. And he set it up um, partly, I think, because he was being criticised for not uh, being as um, uh, welcoming to other modes of transport other than the car. And so he thought, well, you know, I can certainly try and win that argument by installing a bike share programme. But I better not make it too big in case it's a big failure, and then everyone will see that it's a big failure. So I'll make it small, so at least if it fails, it's a small failure. But it, it did exactly what you suggested, John, which is that when it's small, we don't get the network benefit. So it then becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy, and it just it ends up being a, a failed uh, system because it's too small. So one of the things that the New York bike share scheme, when they were doing their feasibility for it they said it's it's go big or go home if we're not going to do it big then we're not going to do it at all and I think that's the, r- the right decision and Melbourne is another big city uh, should have made the same sort of decision and I, but I don't think it's the end of bike share necessarily there might be something that comes up in the future which perhaps we can talk about this morning uh, that might better be able to meet people's mobility needs.
0: Can we deal with the graveyard first though and talk about o-bikes because that did deal with some of the docking issues because they were dockless mm. uh, etc but that didn't go well. Well, here but that the o-bikes have worked in other cities so what is it about that scheme that um meant that they ended up in trees and and the error and the like
2: well we did have a high level of vandalism and misuse with the o-bikes um and there are plenty of uh, youtube videos from all around the world of people using dockless bike share bikes in ways that were unintended uh, but uh i don't actually know of too many cities that had embraced o-bikes in a way that was successful. Uh, So O-Bikes are now a failed company and they had very poor asset management. So the bikes themselves were really bad. So the stands were really poor, which meant that in even moderately strong winds, the bikes would just fall down. And if you line up four or five of them in a row, then you just get this domino effect and they all fall over and then block the pavement. And that makes people angry. And when people are angry about them, then they throw them in the river. And so it was just this cascading uh, series of events that led to a very quick demise of the bike share scheme the o-bike scheme and i think what we'll start to see is a move away from dockless schemes because the management of it is so hard yes they are cheap but you then uh, it makes it very difficult to manage that asset well because they can just float around the scheme i imagine
1: councils don't love them as well if they don't collect them from waterways and
2: even councils that are generally supportive of more cycling didn't like o-bikes because they it just became another thing that they needed to manage
0: we're speaking with Elliot Fishman, Director of Transport Innovation at the Institute for Sensible Transport about the, the failed um, blue bike share scheme in Melbourne. Um, and of course, we're just talking about the O-bikes there. Where um, So these bikes are going to be history. What could fill their place? Because as you've highlighted, there's cities around the world that are large ones like Melbourne that have successful uh, bike share schemes could we see one emerge? And I suppose, will we see a a state government game enough to invest in it?
2: Yeah, well, I think one of the things that's really changed in the bike share commercial sector between 2008 and 2009, which is when Melbourne started thinking about bike share before they introduced the blue bikes, and now is that, first of all, it's a mobile first environment. So bike share's uh, companies are looking for something that uh, doesn't necessarily need the docks, or if they do have docks, they're just simply places to lock the bikes, but the sign-up process happens on the mobile. And the other thing that's happened in the bike share world since 2010, when Melbourne Bike Share started, is that uh, electric bike share is now not just a kind of a concept or a um, uh, an idea, it's something that happens in lots of cities around the world. And in cities that have a bike share scheme that has a combination of electric bikes and non-electric bikes, the electric bikes are used about three or four times as often as the non-electric bikes. So people have a real preference for the electric bikes when given a choice. And uh, we've seen uh, Uber by Jump, which is a a dockless or semi-dockless e-bike company from uh, the US, and they're now looking to roll out in Australia. So I wouldn't be too surprised whether it's Uh, the uh, Uber-owned Jump bikes or another bike share company come in and do it in a way that doesn't cost the taxpayer all that much money because the provision of bike share systems has become more efficient and cheaper than what uh, the Victorian government entered into uh, back in 2010. So I think we'll start to see something. Uh, What it looks like, it's hard to know because I think the view of the Victorian government is that they'll leave it up to the private sector to come to them and say, we want to do this, but we need this amount of uh, road space or curbside space to park the, the bikes.
1: And you, uh, as we mentioned at the, the top of this interview, you have a brand new book out on bike share schemes around the world, uh, which was released on the day that the the Melbourne bike share scheme was pronounced dead. But based on the research you've done, is there anything in, in um, the sense that Australians culturally are more Um, kind of married to the idea of bike ownership rather than using bike share schemes. Is there anything in that or or do you think people would readily adopt a a bike share scheme if it was convenient?
2: Well, we do have very high levels of bike ownership in Australia. That's true because we don't have the sort of housing type that we have in Paris or New York where lots of walk-up apartments where there isn't enough room to store a bike. Uh, Most, I think, uh, over 80% of Australian households have the capacity to store a bike relatively easily in a garage or a shed. So, that isn't so much of a problem, but where bike share really comes into play is giving people multimodal transport options so that you might uh, get the train in to work in the morning if it's raining and then in the afternoon, if it's sunny, you might uh, get out on the bike or um, there are a lot of situations in which having being able to use the bike in a one-way rather than a, a two-way mm. commute or trip is really useful. So I think that would work. In terms of uh, Australia's, you know, the psychology of Australians in perhaps not being as Uh, as enthusiastic about taking it up. I don't think that's so much the problem. I think it's more a question of the streets and how the streets deal with cyclists in terms of the provision of infrastructure. That's the key thing. So in the focus groups that I've done as part of the development of the book, we spoke to people that were... uh, not current cyclists, but interested in cycling. And the key thing that stopped them from being uh, someone that would sign up to a bike share program is the lack of infrastructure. And they don't want to have to share the road with cars. That, that, that's the key thing. If you if you have a system that forces riders to ride on the road with cars, it doesn't matter how fancy the bikes are or how cheap it is. A lot of people won't won't do it. And I, I think that's something that most Australian governments can now take as a lesson from what's happened in Melbourne and say well okay if we're going to do something else in an Australian city we're going to have to deal with the infrastructure to allow people to ride safely.
0: And I wonder I mean we you know this idea that maybe people don't like to share also we can probably turn that on its head because car share schemes have done quite well in this city.
2: Yeah, that's right. I don't think it's an issue with sharing, although sharing of helmets is a different thing because it's a a hygiene concern that a lot of people have with that. And because of mandatory helmet laws, the only real halfway successful solution we've come up with for mandatory helmets is to just provide helmets on the handlebars of the bikes for people to use and then leave for the next rider. That's an issue. But in terms of the sharing the bike uh, itself, that's not something that people have an issue with. Most bike share members in Australia do actually own their own private bike as well, and they sometimes ride their private bike, and they sometimes ride a public bike where it suits them. But one of the interesting things for those people is that they find that drivers uh, are more considerate of them when they're on a bike share bike than when they're on their own private bike. And and that might be one of the reasons why people riding bike-share bikes have less safety uh, concerns or they have less um, incidents of, uh, you know, crashes... Uh, per kilometre travelled than people riding in a private bike. That's
0: interesting. Do you think it's because people go, oh, that's probably a visitor to our city?
2: Yeah, I think it's got something to do with that. So, oh, they must be a tourist or they must be a novice cyclist. They're not a, a pro cyclist wearing Lycra because people riding bike share bikes tend to wear regular clothes, not sporty clothes. So there might be something in that, uh, the idea that the driver is assessing the sort of cyclist that that uh, person might be and uh, giving them more or less uh, a buffer or leeway when they're overtaking them.
1: Yeah, the the idea of um safety and and bike cycling infrastructure is an important one. I think because I never used the bike share scheme or O bikes in Melbourne, but I did use um a kind of similar. Top, well it was a docked scheme in Osaka in Japan last year and you can kind of ride along the footpaths there without a helmet and it feels entirely safe but it's very different to riding um, you know on a major road here in Melbourne where you might not feel safe without a helmet on.
2: And that's one of my concerns with the talk of just putting the blue bike somewhere else so uh, taking it to Bendigo or Geelong but well yeah that's a nice way of reusing an asset that isn't currently um, uh, going to be needed in Melbourne but If you just plonk that in another city, it's hard to think how it will result in anything different to what happened Mm. in Melbourne.
0: Yeah, this idea that it's inherently good, it just didn't kind of work here.
2: Yeah, and maybe would the wrong in, approach. Yeah, and that just <laughs> magically would work in Geelong or Bendigo.
0: Maybe if they do that, you can send a copy of your book with the bikes and just go, um... <laughs> <laughs> I'd be
2: very happy to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you might
0: need to look at this for some ideas for how to improve it. Thanks for coming in. It's really good to pick your brains on this and see you later, Blue Bikes. Um, They'll be removed in the next couple of months and be interested to see if anything replaces them. Elliot Fishman's Director of Transport Innovation at the Institute for Sensible Transport. And you can um, hit that website if you want to chase up Elliot its book and um, send it to Bendigo or Ballarat or whoever gets the blue bikes. Thanks for coming in. Thanks. Uh, there's a sense that the far right is growing in Australia, but academics and others are still scrambling to get across the spectrum of groups, their motivations and international connections. Mario Poika, together with colleague Deborah Smith, are trying to identify where the gaps in our knowledge lie in their new publication, The Far Right in Contemporary Australia. Mario is with the Institute for Sustainable Industries and Livable Cities at Vic Uni, And uh, thanks for coming in to R Mario. Thanks for having me, thanks. And um, so how does um, far-right studies fit within the sustainable industries in livable cities? <laughs> <I> often, <laughs> Sorry, that I was often, not my first question originally. I often wonder,
3: yeah. Um, <laughs> they merged the institutes. So we used to be in a different um, research area, but um, it's a very generic uh, umbrella term, I understand. But it's all right. Everything fits under this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I was really interested to read in the introduction to your book that that horrific massacre in Christchurch earlier this year took place just after you had finished oh, writing it and compiling the book itself. And there was a moment where you questioned whether you should in fact publish the book. Why is that? Is, is it because that might have changed some of your thinking around the, the far right in Australia and further abroad?
3: Well, I mean, Christchurch changed a lot their text in Christchurch. But it's, it's also that we felt for a moment we felt we need to... It's it's hard to publish a book without mentioning Christchurch, and all the contributors to the book didn't have a chance, except for one who delivered a bit later, <laughs> um, had a chance to really take that on board. And if you look at it, and you look at it from a post-Christchurch moment, you think, well, there's something missing there. But we also thought um, we can't wait for the right moment because the, the, the far-right groups and movements um, are constantly in, in flux, so there would never be a right or perfect moment because every book in, is in a way by the time it gets published it's sort of some elements are already you would have changed already so we just decided that it has to get come out as soon as as possible.
0: Mm. And we have a long history in Australia of, of racist politics um, but what's different in the way um, this and other motivations are expressed with, with contemporary far right groups?
3: Well there's a long, long history not only in um, well, some people have argued that Australia is Basically, based on on um, an idea that you turn a a certain empty, supposedly empty land in a, into a white land, which was the basic idea of the uh, White Australia policy, and even before that, the colonization. There were there's a continu- a continuous existence and presence of um, far right groups and also fascist groups after um, World War II, especially um, which there's a Continuation until today, but there were also moments that have changed the nature all the time. Um, What we see is that, especially since the mid-2010s, the landscape has changed, and the media have all of a sudden realized, um, in contrast to previous decades, that there's a so-called rise of the far right, whatever that meant. And then um, that was mainly related to um, local issues like the Benigno-Moss conflict, where it became very, very... Um, visible for the public eye or the Lind Cafe siege that triggered fears or contributed to a moral panic around the place of Islam and Muslims in Australian society so the anti-Muslim component in the far right was is something that was new in the mid-2010s that wasn't something that, that was nothing we saw before that so it has changed the landscape from from their new dynamics and you know Splinter groups and changes within the the, the movements um, occurred.
1: It's it's interesting because we do hear about the the supposed rise of the far right because of that increased visibility mm. around things such as the the Bendigo Mosque and yeah. anti-immigration rallies and and that sort of really ugly. Stuff, But, I, I mean, your book was really motivated by the sense that we don't fully understand the current state of things when it comes to far-right politics and far-right radicalisation yeah. in Australia. Why is that? Why hasn't there been sustained kind of um, close analysis of this well, in Australia? It's,
3: it's a good question. I, I don't know why no one has worked on this before. Admittedly, um, we compared it to, to research, like academic de- developments overseas, especially in Europe and in North America, and there's, way more. There are hundreds and thousands of books on the far-right and articles. Um, but the, the landscape was also has always been different. So the, the prevalence of far-right groups has always been more marginal in Australia than it has been in, in other parts of the world. I don't know why that is, but I, I'm sure that this is one of the reasons why academics haven't jumped on this. I mean, um, there were some occasional articles um, in the 1990s on the political side of things, like the rise of uh, One Nation, for example. But it never really got to a point where we could say that there was an established um, scholarship on on far-right extremism in in Australia. And also the fact that that, um, extremism research is focused way more, also due to the political discourse on whatever you want to call it, jihadist or... Um, extremism, ISIS-inspired extremism. So we sort of forgot to look at other things as well. But admittedly it was also less um, prevalent than in other parts of the world.
0: And I suppose, I mean, it feels like the timing is such that that we really need to um, put a magnifying glass yeah. on, on this. I mean, what academic work is now happening to to study or um, observe what is actually happening within far right groups? And I, I suppose, is it Easy or is it straightforward to study groups or phenomena like this? Um,
3: well, it's exciting um, and it's interesting. And we, I have to I have to say that we come as academics, we come with a um, a very non-judgmental approach. We just want to understand what's going on. We we leave it up to others to judge what comes out of our work. Um, it is not easy, and one of the one of the implications of the complexity of researching the far-right, but that applies to all far-right research or all violent extremism or radicalism research, is that you, you it's not easy to gain access to, to these groups. And that's why most researchers focus on online uh, analysis, um, which is important, but it's only one side of the coin, obviously. And um, we saw in, in our own research work, we found that far-right groups in Australia are moving not completely away from the online space, but they are um, more active now in in the offline space, um, which is really hard to penetrate and to access as researchers. Um, that's why we have quite a lot of academic work now on online um, activism or, or activism in a very broad sense. I mean, some people don't like the term activism in relation to the far right. Um, but we don't know really what's going on ...outside the social media platforms.
1: Yeah, we're well, speaking with Mario Poika. <coughs> excuse me, about his co-edited, co-edited book, um, The Far Right in Contemporary Australia. And I mean, when you do set out to to research some of these groups, what exactly is it that you're you're looking for? If you're looking, for example, at the types of things they're talking about in online communities or mm-hmm. Facebook groups and that sort of thing... How do you tease out, um, you know, some sentiments as opposed to others, anti-Islam sentiments, for example, as opposed to anti-establishment sentiments? I mean, are you tracing particular lines of thought within these types of groups?
3: Yeah, well, first of all, I have to say that the book is is written not by us. We, we were just the editors, so there are many people in there who do different kind of research of in different ways. Um, what we did for our study was we looked at... Um, at a, social, at a specific social media platform, we, we used, back then we used Facebook. wouldn't be the most suitable platform anymore, but back then it was the, one of the most prevalent and active, prolific platforms used by far-right groups. And we, we basically harvested all the, the content uh, over a two-, three-year period, and then through certain technical soft... using... Specific software we we analyzed the the content of of those um, far right um, f- Facebook posts and comments and we had like eight hundred and eighty thousand comments that we and f- forty thousand uh, posts um, and then we look at which themes are. Are particularly common, um, how do they change over time, how do they change during certain periods, for example, during the same-sex same marriage uh, postal vote, um, during the, the Moomba riots, um, or how they differ between what the, the, the posts say as the administrator of a group, the leadership, so to speak, and what the comment, the comments say, who follow them, and whether there is a discrepancy between both. So these are some of the things that we we looked at in our study.
1: Mm. And I imagine there is a great deal of um, diversity and, and I mean difference and contestation within these groups themselves.
3: Yeah, yeah there's there's you, you basically see any topic that could be used for um, in those in those far right. Um, Spaces. I mean, even the, the ban of the plastic bags in supermarkets was an issue for a while. So everything Father's Day is an issue because you just have to, you know, wrap it around a certain theme, and then you can deliver a political message around like the 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 role of fathers is at risk. You can put this in an mm. anti-feminist context, and depending on how you want to frame things, you could use almost any any political con- um, topic. And they use that, and they use it that they take. Uh, Themes from the public debate that is going on, like as I mentioned before, the same-sex marriage debate, and deliver a certain message that that is aligned with their ideological frames, basically.
0: And so there is a local component to this, I yeah. imagine, but also their sense that there is international yeah. connections. Um, uh, uh, is that similar uh, to other groups around the world with that sort of jumping on what's happening in the you know the local or the the political environment, and then. Um, seeing it through a certain prism I suppose.
3: Yeah well there's I mean these groups are obviously like many other groups are um, connected internationally I mean the, what I found quite interesting is that all the topics that you find in the Australian far right all the even the jokes are basically the memes everything you find I initially found that quite creative to be honest but then you realize it's actually not created from mostly not created from well, domestically it comes through, it's just imported from overseas so it's it's a it's very well embedded in a in an international discourse in the far right i mean the social social media platforms are obviously a key to to that um but then you people bring it into the local context and we see that more and more in our in our um, content analysis for example we looked at um we saw how um the discussion used to in 2016-2017 was more on um, international issues that was to do with Trump and, and the refugee crisis in Europe. But then over time it shifted more towards talking about local councils, um, local issues, talking about local politicians and local politics. So there was a, a shift. I mean, it doesn't, It's not one or the other, but it, it, it increased the interest in local issues. Mm. We
1: saw um, in in the aftermath of the uh, shooting in El Paso in the USA that the shooter had used some of the language of um, a migrant invasion that was Mm. kind of borrowed from President Donald Trump. Here in Australia, do you get the sense that far-right groups are taking their lead from politicians who might be considered on the kind of far-right or or, or radical right of the spectrum, such as Fraser Ranning or One Nation, and and or media reports that might propel some of that xenophobic language? Are they referencing that in some of these forums?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a very strong... A strong factor, and as I said before, it's anything that the public di- discourse defines w- w- what topics are spoken about in those groups. So, if um, it's quite possible that the, uh, a conservative politician makes a statement, and that that is then basically presented as okay, this guy is at least talking some sense. Um, Fraser Anning was a big guy, and after his final solution speak in the Senate, um, the, the um, sympathies shifted away from. Pauline Hanson towards Fraser Anning. When Pauline Hanson condemned that, um, people within far right groups then say, "Well, this is our new hero." I mean, and still there is a certain admiration for Fraser Enning. I mean, it has I mean, cooled down a bit after the electoral. Lost basically, last, last election. But there's a, a strong sense that you, you use statements from politicians, from the public debate, and use it for your own, push it a bit further. I mean, we often speak about mainstreaming. You take something out of the mainstream, a certain topic... Um, and then you, you radicalize that and you push, push it to an extreme and then it feeds back into the, the public debate. We saw that, for example, in the discourse about it's okay to be white, uh, something that used to be a hardcore fascist uh, white supremacy um, slogan, which made it into the Senate and almost got through. And we see it um, with many other different issues, like um, why genocide was something that the far right groups used to not really speak openly about, only very fringe groups. And now it's basically a standard conversation. And um, that that happens to many things. It feeds back into the mainstream. So there's a circular dynamic interplay between both.
0: And your book um, that you co-edited, Mario, you do raise, um, I I suppose, highlight that that studying and researchers having a look at these groups is really important that we need to kind of grapple with it and and understand it better. Um, I suppose I'd love to know... What might come from that, do you think? I mean, you yourself, as uh, you say, you're a researcher. Mm. You're not there to tell us what to do with this information. Okay. But I wonder if you thought about uh, how we might use academic texts and insights uh, in in the public debate. I know a lot of people, you know, will go and do counter rallies. If, mm. if there's known to be a far-right rally happening, people will turn up yep. for the opposing view you know, what do you think might come if we learn
3: more? I think it's it's really important to understand better what's going on, and it's also under, important to understand the complexity and and um, diversity of far right groups because if we label them all as fascists, and I know that's a very prominent and popular thing to do, and it's I can understand the you know the emotional anger that behind that, but it doesn't help understanding, and it doesn't help um, to. Basically, find measures to respond and to counteract um, these complex movements or groups. So, if, if um, we don't see the difference between someone who gets dragged along to certain rallies or occasionally pops up on a Facebook page or in another social media platform, um, who has concerns, and all that, people just think it's you. you there, there are no concerned citizens in in those spaces, um, but there are. And if we want to find Um, responses to that and get some people out or or prevent them from going further into a radicalization process. We need to understand um, the reasons behind people's concerns and and fears. And if someone is concerned about a mosque, that's something that needs to be discussed, not just delegitimized, Per se, if someone wants to be against the mosque because um, that person wants to use it for political purposes, then you probably can't engage in the, an ideological e- exchange. But there are different ways to to move forward, and we can't put them all in the same box and say, well, we just don't want those people because we have to take concerns seriously where they are, um, where they are, where it's helpful to take them seriously. So the big difference is. When you talk about crimes, for example, African gang crimes, so to speak, the so-called Does the person who protests against this want them? Do they want to stop crime, or do they actually need crime for their political agenda? And if we need, we need to see the difference and the complexity within these groups in order to find ways to deal with them.
1: Yeah, really interesting. I'm fascinated to know if, if uh, what your future research might look like in the aftermath of this book, and whether it is, um, you know, leading in that sort of direction to enhancing understanding about these groups and and the nuances.
3: We keep working. I mean, we keep working in this space. it's it's broad we also look at the counter protest that you mentioned we also want to understand the dynamics between different groups um on on, on the opposite political spectrum uh, we want to understand um how they mutually reinforce their agenda um and we want to understand, move away from purely social media focused research and look at what, what people actually think about um a mosque. I mean, now the Bendigo Community Center, Islamic Community Center, is 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 in the process of being built. So, what what are people's concerns about this? In, instead of silencing people, we want to understand and and give people a chance to talk about it constructively. Mm.
0: Yeah, we need nuance in our conversations. (laughs) It's been really great. And thank you for coming um, in and speaking with us. Uh, The book we've been speaking about, uh, The Far Right in Contemporary Australia, it's uh, co-edited by Mario Poika, who is our guest this morning. It is an academic work, but I think a lot of conversations will come out of it. And we look forward to hearing what you um, do next, Mario. Thanks for coming. Thanks very much.
1: Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday.
0: Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.